0: This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday, 10 to 2, on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. That's and it. Set <laughs> Brilliant. Brilliant. Bianca Andrescu is a five. grand slam.
1: Two and a quarter rounds we've had on Ash.
0: Oh, that was such a great moment. And the look on Bianca Andreescu's face, you could just, you could see it. You could see exactly what she was thinking, which was, I can't believe what just happened. She has earned it and she's going to make history regardless because first Canadian woman to make it to the finals of the U.S. Open. And that means that a lot of people across the country are going to be tuned in tomorrow, I think one o'clock our time, it's four o'clock Eastern, that this women's final is going to happen at the Open. And it makes us want to ask this question because it's a tough one for people out there if you're a tennis fan in particular or if you're a Serena Williams fan which so many people are you've got Serena Williams and you know I've been rooting for Serena Williams to have the big comeback ever since she came back from maternity leave I want to see her like right up there again except for tomorrow because tomorrow she's going up against Canadian 19 year old Bianca Andrescu and you're like great but maybe the next tournament for Serena Williams who are you going to be cheering for? in tomorrow's U.S. Open's Women's Singles Final. That is our hot question of the day today. Is it Bianca Andreescu, hashtag SheTheNorth, or is it Serena Williams, hashtag... Goat greatest of all time. Because for tennis fans, right, you may have been following one or the other in particular for a long time. So we've made this our hot question of the day today. You can check it out online. Simi Sarah 980, which can take the temperature of Canadian fans out there. If you've been following along with this story, you can find it at uh, Simi Sarah 980 or at CKNW. You can email me to Simi at CKNW.com or call our buzzline. Here's the thing. We're going to talk some tennis later today because what does it take to get there, Uh, she's 19 years old. She has worked her way, as Gord told us, a year ago. She wasn't even in the top 100, and uh, now she's going to definitely be in the top 10, maybe even top 5 by the time she finishes this U.S. Open Women's Final. What does it take to get there, to train? Can you tell when somebody is a prodigy? We're going to talk to a very well-known tennis coach about that coming up on the show today. Busy week this week, right? Back to all those schedules, back to all those routines, and this was still kind of early. That real crunch comes next week with full school days and everybody getting right back into it and late mornings and after school rush and all of that stuff. This is also a week where, as you well know, or you should know anyway, that police have been out in full force making sure that drivers remember that there's kids out and about now once again in September. But it sounds like from some of these preliminary reports that we're getting from police departments is that drivers still aren't getting the message in particular to slow down in school zones to 30 kilometers an hour. This, in to, to use the terminology for police, is fish in a barrel. They could show up at a school zone every September, no matter how many times we say it in the media or police put out warnings about, watch out, they're going to be monitoring these uh, places. And they're still going to catch driver after driver after driver, not heeding the school speed limit. Now, Out in Delta, uh, Global News senior reporter Janet Brown had a chance to catch up with Constable Vince Newdorf. And he was doing enforcement along a very busy stretch of 72nd Avenue outside of Heath Elementary. Have a listen.
2: Constable Newdorf, you just stopped a vehicle here and tell us how fast they were going.
3: This vehicle was going 63 kilometres in a marked 30 kilometre zone. In fact, this zone has flashing lights on the sign to warn drivers that there's a 30 kilometre zone here.
2: So what happens to the motorists? A ticket or what?
3: Yeah, the motorists will receive a ticket in this case. Uh, when you're more than 20 kilometres over the limit, the fine does go up. In this case, the fine in the school zone is $253. If you're just over the 30-kilometre mark, then there's some discretion. In that range of 1 to 20 kilometres over, it'd be 196
2: Now, I have to admit and be honest with you that 30k seems pretty slow when you're behind the wheel. But from your perspective, what do you have to say to that?
3: Unfortunately, I also have the job as the reconstructionist in Delta, which means I attend all of the fatal files uh, for pedestrians or otherwise. Uh, Every kilometer you add to the speed does increase injury and the chance of a fatality. At 50k, for most adults, the percentage is pretty close to about 50% chance of fatality if you're hit at 50k. As you approach 65k, You get up to about 85% chance of fatality, depending on which study you want to read. We want the kids to have a much better chance than 50-50, so we're lowering that speed down to 30. And they do get a much better chance, although injuries to kids are not very good given their small height uh, versus the front of the vehicle. One of the other problems we find is the higher speed that a vehicle's going, their focus goes further down the road and it's kind of narrow. So the faster you're going, you start to lose perspective of their wide angles. For example, children approaching the roadway, or even this bright yellow sign that says, please go 30 kilometers. With your focus so far down the roadway, you don't see these things from the outside. As a result, the first indication for many drivers that they've hit a pedestrian is after they've hit them. So, when I show up at a collision scene, it's not uncommon to find tire skid marks after the initial impact. And at 63K, uh, if they hit and strike at that full speed, that does have an 85% chance of a fatality occurring.
2: Are you finding a lot of people still driving and
3: on their cell phone? I still see it for sure. To be completely honest, com- from when the start of my career to where we are now, I, it's, a, it's a good reduction. I mean, there's not as many cell phones. Uh, but that being said, if I'm going to look for cell phones in people's hands and texting, uh, it, it won't take me longer than five minutes driving out on the road to find a, a person uh, distracted by their cell phone. The important thing to remember is, is that combined with speed is a recipe for disaster. Um, perception reaction time is kind of this idea that as you're driving down the road, you need a certain amount of time to see the problem and react to the problem and at the higher speed you're going or if you're distracted by a mobile device or if you're intoxicated or some other issues going on uh, you drastically up those seconds most people have a perception reaction time on average of about one and a half seconds so at 80 kilometers an hour they will travel about 33 meters in that second and a half before they even do anything That means they have to hit the brakes still, slide to a stop, avoid the object, and they've already gone this massive distance. Uh, A metre is about three feet, so 33 metres is a a big distance to go, for example, at 80 k, If you're going 30 k in a school zone, you have much, much more time to see a problem, react, press the brakes and come to a stop. None of that will happen if you're on your cell phone and seconds are ticking away and your vehicle moves forward, unfortunately.
2: What have you heard over the years? What kind of crazy excuses have you heard?
3: Uh, for a lot of people that are going to various appointments, uh, a lot of people that are late for work. I've seen a lot of people who who suddenly need to use the washroom um, and that's why they're speeding.
0: <laughs> Sorry, that's kind of ridiculous, right? So you're late for work or you need to go to the bathroom and that's why you're speeding through a school zone. He stopped somebody who, last person he'd stopped was going 63 In a 30 zone. Think about how fast that is for a moment with how many kids there are, you know, walking around there, running around there. So we're not only speeding, we're also still on our cell phones How many warnings can you give people at this point? How much more information, you know, education campaigns do you need to put out there to explain to people this is not a good idea? Well, this is one of those Fridays out of the year that everybody's looking forward to because it's been a crazy week. It's been very busy. People are probably feeling a bit stressed out. And maybe you have been busted by police, perhaps, for speeding. A lot of people got those tickets this week. A big reminder to people to slow down in the school zones. Police have been out, traffic enforcement units, right across Metro Vancouver, BC. Really, anywhere near a school, they have been out in full force. So what have people been doing? Are they still speeding? Does it matter how many times you tell them not to? I would love to hear what you have seen out there this week in terms of driving behavior. I actually just saw somebody yesterday go right by me. I was stopped at a stoplight and they were driving in the other direction on their cell phone, looking down, looking down and looking up. And I thought that, oh boy, still after all this time, still we're doing this. What have you seen out there this week that you just thought, can't believe people are this dumb. Uh, You can email me, send me at cknw.com, use our buzz line 604-331-2899. You can also tweet me with that. Simisara980. Right now, though, let's check in with Acting Inspector Ryan Hall. He oversees the traffic unit of the Delta Police Department. Thanks so much for joining us today.
4: Uh, Thank you for having me. And I hope you're enjoying this beautiful Friday.
0: I certainly am because the countdown is on (laughs) for, for the weekend. So what what kind of enforcement has Delta been doing this week? Well, how did you ramp up?
4: So we always uh, deploy our resources strategically uh, with the goal of reducing harm and making sure people get to their des- uh, destination safely. So this week, obviously, with the return to back to school, we have been high visibility in uh, all the school zones across the board throughout Delta. And uh, we've had uh, a good success because we have no reported injuries or uh, accidents within those areas.
0: OK, well, that's one measure of good success. But how many tickets and how much bad behavior have you seen? So we've
4: just and just with speeding so this is just within speeding within a school zone so specific to that we've written 112 tickets as of uh, 1030 this morning so about uh, 28 tickets a day over the last four days and we uh, conducted one administrative uh, review of uh, an impaired driver and uh, that person lost their license for uh, 90 days and their vehicle for 30 days.
0: Okay now how would you compare that to previous years?
4: Uh I what we're trying to do is we're trying to make sure that we're focused on the um the um the behavior change and the behavior. So we haven't taken those numbers and compared to our previous years yet. Right. Uh, and really the the number I'm looking for will be what harm did we reduce? That that will be the the outcome. Like the tickets become the outputs, but really the outcome what we're trying to do is reduce harm. So it's a little early for me to say yet.
0: Right. But clearly officers didn't have any problem finding people who were speeding. <laughs>
4: uh I, well. What we try and do is we try and go high visibility. So if somebody comes across us, uh, then, you know, we will uh, we will deal with it, obviously. Um, but with uh, 28 tickets a day, obviously, we're trying to get our message out there that uh, we want people to slow down the school zones.
0: So you're saying you're high visibility, meaning it's not like you're hiding anywhere, right? Like everybody knows that you're there and they're still speeding through school zones. Well, and, and we try and
4: go one step further. We try and engage with our public with media campaigns. You know, if, if we wrote... Uh, zero tickets and uh, no one got hurt in a period of time that we were out in a specific area that it was identified through our our uh, our strategic uh, analysis of where the harm is happening on the roads we would call that a win
0: right but yet that's there are a lot of education campaigns i mean we've talked about it a couple times this week and yet people still speed yes yes they do what kind of excuses do you hear Um,
4: I think there's a variety of different ones. Uh, I can't get into the specifics of it. I mean, I haven't heard them personally in the last, uh, the last week. Um, but, uh, you know, we always hear, I've got to drop my kids off at school. I've got to be at work on time. What we're trying to do is we're trying to let people know that you can still accomplish all these goals while doing the speed limit and you can still arrive at your destination safely. And we all play a part in road safety.
0: You must hear some doozies though. There must be some that around the office you guys go, Man, you're not gonna believe the excuse I got today.
4: Yeah. There are some. And and we'll keep those to ourselves for professional.
0: Oh, that's no fun. That's no fun. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Inspector Hall, what works though? Like does education work? Because, you know, we, we do when the police have a campaign, of course we report on it, we tell everybody about it, and yet we still don't see we still have these problematic driving behaviors.
4: Right, and, and so we, we go down a different philosophical road with that. So obviously what we're trying to do is identify the people who are the, the biggest uh, risk uh, to the public and then try and uh, try and manage that through enforcement. We try and engage with the public uh, and we try and work with our engineering section to see if we can change the roadway. Uh, we have a really good relationship with our engineering section here in Delta, and so if we need modifications of the road to, to narrow a road or to uh, to put in medians and whatnot, uh, that, that uh, that kind of strategy combined is really what reduces collisions and reduces injuries. So enforcement's one part of it.
0: Right. What is the cost if someone gets caught and gets that ticket speeding through a school zone? What's it going to cost them? It, it could
4: be anywhere from, it depends on the speed. It could be anywhere from $196 where they could wind up with a, a substantial fines if they're going over 40 kilometers an hour over the speed limit. I'd hate to think that anyone would go 70 kilometers an hour through a 30 kilometer an hour zone, but you could wind up with uh, excessive speed tickets uh, upwards of uh, $500 and you could wind up with your uh, vehicle being impounded wow. for seven days.
0: Because, I mean, one of the officers we heard from earlier, he'd caught somebody going 63 in a 30 zone. Yes.
4: Yes. And, uh, and I think... I think what we're trying to get the public to do is just be aware of where the school zones are. Uh, Most people have a routine of where they drive, uh, especially in the morning. Most people know they're going to drop their kids off at school, and then from there, what route they're going to take to work. And so we're asking you to know your routes and know the speed limits.
0: We'll see if that works. Uh, Thank you so much for joining us.
4: No problem. thank Thank you for having me, and if you need anything else, give us a call.
0: We sure will. That is Acting Inspector Ryan Hall. He oversees a traffic unit at the Delta Police Department. I think every parent would like to believe that their child has what it takes to be a superstar, particularly an athletic one. If your child plays sports, you know, kid plays hockey, you think, oh, my kid's going to the NHL. Your kid plays any sport, you think scholarship, you know, big stars. Of course, we also know that's not always the case for the majority of kids out there. But Watching Bianca Andreescu, in particular her parents in the crowd there, as this 19-year-old plays her way to the U.S. Open final, well, it's been amazing. And I'm sure more than one parent has thought, maybe I should enroll my child in tennis lessons. Maybe that's what will really do it for them. But what does it take? Certainly more than natural ability, but how can you tell that your child might just be a future champion? Well, let's ask our next guest about that. He is Vadim Kork, the former coach of Vasek Pospisil, Rebecca Marino, and eight other Canadian junior champions. Vadim, thank you so much for being here with us today. Good morning, now, you've been doing this for a long time. How did you get into coaching tennis?
5: Well, all of my life, it's, uh, it's tennis. I play tennis, and then I start coaching right after uh, graduating university. So all my life, it's tennis, let's say, from 10 years old until, until now. So, so you... that's my favorite, favorite thing. You love it. I love it so much, and it's my life.
0: What do you think of Bianca Andrescu's game? How does she look?
5: Oh, Bianca, she is, um, she is amazing. So she became, for me, like my favorite female tennis player. And I started following her like only this year. And then I'm watching all her matches. And um, so she my, she's my she's my favorite.
0: When you watch her play, though, what are the strengths of her game? What do you like about the way she plays?
5: You know what? Um, I like kind of um, romantic tennis. So when you change the tactic, when you have emotions like positive or sometimes negative emotions, when you can change your strokes, when you play like drop shots, you know, slices, coming on, sneaking to the net, uh, play angles, drop shots. So that's uh, kind of tennis what I teach my, st- uh, my students to play. And this is what I can see with Bianca. So she is not just, I would say, the hitter. Uh, she is, um, she has all court game, and she's using all her shots. But the most important, her strength, it's the mental strength. Because, um, you know, yesterday I was watching her semifinal match, and when it came in the first set, tie tiebreak, I knew 100% she will win. She was down 4-1, 5-2 in the second set and I knew she going to win. It looked like she can't lose because she's so, so confident.
0: Now, can you teach that, or does that come over time? Is that natural ability?
5: Uh, you know, for myself, I call some of my students like the dreamers and some professionals, even when in very young age, because they know what to do. They have high goals, and they follow these goals. So I always show my young students, the Vasek special day schedule when he was 12 years old. Mm-hmm. And it was just um, from 7 a.m. to 9 p.m. It was just tennis, studying fitness, studying tennis. And even on Sunday, it's, uh, it's still something, uh, something with tennis. So his goals when he was like 10, 11 years old, he did everything correct, you know, like, to, right to become a professional tennis player. And he he became a great, you know, like, tennis player.
0: And he was 12 years old when he had that kind of schedule?
5: Yes, yes. So I have it, and I show it to all my students. And they, they're trying to follow sometimes, but not they're not following, <laughs> like, for the long time. So they can do it like one week, two weeks, but it's, it's a full sacrifice, you know, like for, because you have high goals and some kids, they know from the very young age what it takes to become a professional tennis player.
0: So is that what it takes then, Vadim? You have to, as young as 12, you have to be that committed to being successful.
5: Yes, hundred percent, not even 12. Some, some, they have this type of goals even, even in the younger age. Even younger yes, even younger
0: so how many can you tell when you see a child that they have the ability to maybe make this
5: uh yes, and I'm not uh judging you know like the talent because um you know i I judge and for me more important, it's a hard work and effort you can put and sacrifice you know like what um what you need to, you know, to achieve your high goals. Mm -hmm. Talent for me, it's not the first because usually the talented kids, you know, they start very quick and they have great results. But then when it's some difficulties, you know, it comes, so they don't know how to handle it. And they sometimes they quit tennis or they get too negative about themselves. And I prefer like the sneakers. I prefer the guys who are working very hard and then, um, you know they can achieve. Of course, every coach uh, dream about you have students with the talent and the hard work. Mm-hmm. And I believe Washak was exactly the same, uh, the same person. And what is what is very important? It's a family support. You know, it's one of the most important things in a junior tennis. And when I can see Bianca, uh, mom and dad, so they look so calm. They do, don't they? (laughs) Yeah, and because of that, I think that it gives, you know, like Bianca, you know, like confidence. And I believe that these parents, this type of parents, they not interfere into the tennis process. And it's very important also for players and for the coaches. And I can see Silvan Bruno, you know, like her coach. Also, Mm -hmm. I, I, I can understand what he feels when when she played because
0: what does does he feel then as the coach what do you feel when your student is doing that
5: it's heartbreaking because I can just compare it with myself and I couldn't be the same person for my son you know I was quite emotional because when when your student plays it's like you playing the mistakes he does it's like your mistakes you know what to do but you don't know how to help you know like during the match
0: that's so hard. Can you teach that mental toughness, do you think, Vadim?
5: Of course you can. I mean, that some, they're born as a champions, what I said, but um, you never give up with that. So definitely you can, you can learn. And, um, you know, I always support all my students, even if they don't believe in themselves, you know, and I can see some problem with the mental toughness. It's still the coaching job, you know. You need to teach them. And um, so result will come.
0: What kind of impact do you think Bianca Andreescu is going to have on tennis in Canada?
5: That would be great, Ken. It was, um, it, it might be like the same what um, uh, Jeannie Bouchard, she yes. made like a few years ago. But in my opinion, uh, Bianca, she's, um, she has better chance to become a great uh, Canadian and again, international top player, because of tennis she plays.
0: Because of the type of game she plays.
5: Yeah, type of game, and again, the the way she behave on the court.
0: Well then, when you look at tomorrow, Vadim, do you have a prediction for us?
5: Yes, I do. I believe it will be the same result uh, like last year. For It will be the same uh, mental match for uh, Serena, you know, like she played with um, Osaka last year. Yeah. And I predict that Bianca, she will win tomorrow.
0: Okay. Fingers crossed. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us today.
5: Thank you for having me.
0: That is Vadim Kork, the former coach of Vashik Pospisil, Rebecca Marino, and eight other Canadian junior champions. About a year ago, the city of Vancouver tried to do something that many cities have been struggling with, and that is regulate short term rentals. And we're talking big cities like Toronto, New York, Paris, and others have really had trouble reining in this issue. And the city of Vancouver a year ago said, okay, we're going to see what we can do here. They required a business license, they required that business license number to be posted on the listings. And now, a year later, they say the majority, 73% are operating legally. But that still means there's quite a few people who haven't obtained a license. We're going to talk more about this now with the help of Catherine Holm, who's the Chief License Inspector for the City of Vancouver. Thank you so much for joining us.
6: No worries. Thanks for having me.
0: Now, what does this picture tell you about the compliance rate of this issue?
6: Well, as you just said, we are a year into the program um, and We've been quite pleased to see that uh, 73%, as you said, of our uh, short-term rental operators in Vancouver have uh, acquired a business license. Uh, looking around uh, other cities in North America, that's a very high compliance rate uh, relative to the success that they have seen in, with compliance with their regulations. So, so we feel uh, the program is off to a very solid start uh, to see such a high rate of compliance with licensing.
0: And why do you think Vancouver is seeing better compliance on this issue than, say, other cities? The Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, I think
6: we uh, dedicated a lot of uh, time and energy to communication uh, with operators uh, when we commenced this program and and trying to inform folks who wanted to run a short-term rental in their home about how they could be compliant with our new bylaws. Uh, So we're very happy that uh, a large portion of our uh, residents here uh, followed that, uh, followed our guidance and obtained a license. Uh, I think another reason we've had uh, some uh, good compliance numbers is uh, due to our partnership with Airbnb um, to also communicate with their hosts and uh, to require that their uh, hosts have a business license.
0: Right. So having make sure it's like required right there on the website, does that make enforcement easier as well?
6: Well, part of our agreement with Airbnb is for data sharing. Um, so they regularly share data about their hosts um, that informs our enforcement efforts. And certainly, yes, that that is helpful to ensure that uh, people are appropriately obtaining licenses and using them accordingly.
0: right. So because it still means that twenty seven percent of people out there don't have this license, right?
6: That's right. we're still we're still in the process of you know, really uh, rolling out. Uh, i 'd say the program and and moving towards a higher compliance rate again, as you mentioned, you know many cities around the world really are are struggling with this matter. There is no uh, silver bullet out there to to address this that said we 're very Uh, happy to see uh, the results we've had thus far with uh, license compliance rates and and we're continuing to work on increasing that number. Um, So you're right there are uh, there are still folks out there who have chosen to not obtain a license yet. Uh, We're optimistic they will. We also have some folks who have um, misrepresented themselves in obtaining the license and Mm. uh, those are the folks that we uh, are focusing on with our enforcement efforts as well.
0: well. What do you mean misrepresenting themselves in what way?
6: Uh, so some folks
0: uh, you know part of our
6: um, requirements for our business license are to ensure that it's your principal residence because uh, that again aligns with uh, the primary objectives of, of regulating uh, short-term rentals it was to protect the long-term rental market so we wanted to ensure that short-term rentals were not happening in homes that are, could serve as somebody's principal residents as their home, and, and uh, rather that they would be operating as transient accommodations. So in some cases, uh, we uh, have reason to believe, thanks to a lot of input from our uh, uh, residents and, and complaints we received through One, that uh, it's suggested that uh, someone is conducting a short-term rental in a property that's not their home, so we investigate that, and uh, take steps to audit and confirm that, in fact, it is their principal residence.
0: And what kind of um, enforcement action have you taken? Are, are people paying attention when you do like catch up with them?
6: Uh, yes I, I would say um, we've uh, more than uh, doubled our enforcement efforts uh, since uh, last March I said about six months ago um, and we have specifically done uh, an increase in our auditing uh, work um, where we uh, like I said identify licenses where we think someone may have misrepresented themselves and we do see a number of people go uh, go out of business um, or, or cancel their license because they realize they aren't in compliance and uh, and we also have issued a number of suspensions to license where we have found they don't meet the requirement of uh, it being a principal residence.
0: Yeah, and so is that where you're having the most trouble then? Because you know we'd heard before these regulations came in that people were you know buying condos and putting them up on Airbnb. It wasn't their principal residence.
6: We, we certainly are still you know seeing some evidence of that um, and we are actively um, again thanks uh, uh, not only in help uh, due to help from the public in, pre- in presenting us with uh, case files that we should be looking at but we also um, look at the data available online uh, to identify case files where we can investigate to confirm that if this is happening if a short-term rental is happening in a property that it is serving as someone's principal residence.
0: And so are you able to also track down like locations I know earlier on, like a year ago when this first came in, you know, we were hearing reports of of people saying the listing was say in Burnaby, but not necessarily in Burnaby, but was in Vancouver. Is there a way to track locations as well?
6: Yes, absolutely. So we've continued to work um, with uh, our data uh, to better understand where the location is. Um, it, you know that that situation in itself we find quite interesting um, because if someone's booking a property, they probably want to know exactly what city well, right. they're going to yeah. be seeing, and um, so it's an interesting uh, ploy on the part of the hosts to misrepresent what city they're actually operating in. Uh, but yes, we have we have been able to. Um, work with that, uh, those specific scenarios and to track down those locations that are misrepresenting what city they're actually operating in.
0: Right. And so if there is a fine, then are people paying it? Uh, Often they are,
6: and often they go out of business. And, you know, again, our goal here has always been compliance. Um, We uh, Issuing a ticket is a a tool to uh, help people understand that we um, mean that they need to either get in compliance by getting a license or going out of business. Um, So uh, that has been one of our many enforcement uh, mechanisms that we've been using to uh, alert uh, folks that they are operating illegally and that they need to come into compliance one way or the other.
0: So what happens now then, Catherine? So you've got this 73% and you're like, oh, that's not bad, but you could do better. How do you do better? What do you do?
6: Well, I mean, we're continuing our efforts to educate and communicate to uh, ensure that our compliance rate with licensing continues to grow. Um, We also are coming back to council later this year um, with some uh, observations and recommendations based on one year of operating the program uh, and identifying some ideas to uh, further bolster the program.
0: And what kind of help is Airbnb giving you with all this?
6: Well, we have a, a partnership agreement with Airbnb in the form of a, of a memorandum of understanding. Um, as I mentioned, they, they are helping with communication with their hosts. Um, and we just do also have a data sharing agreement um, where they will share data on a regular basis uh, with respect to their hosts. Um, and we use that data to inform our enforcement. They also require that all of their hosts have a business license and that they include it in their listing as a mandatory field.
0: Right. So you clearly look at this as more of a longer term issue. This is like you believe that gradual compliance will be ramped up here?
6: I think we're looking to how um, other cities in the world either you know have before us or continue to approach this, um, and I think we're seeing worldwide that it's an it's an ever changing dynamic market, um, and that we're continually adapting uh, as our other cities to how the market uh, is uh, an industry is changing, and we're going to continue to do that.
0: Have you heard from any other um, you know lower mainland municipalities who would like to also perhaps adopt these kinds of regulations? regulations. Uh, we uh,
6: are um, very uh, honored to receive calls from around the world on a regular basis, um, uh, cities large and small and, and literally worldwide of um, uh, folks curious about uh, what we've done um, and uh, if there are learnings that we can share um, about how we've uh, developed our policy and how we've rolled it out, we're, we're always happy to share. So yes we're, we're in regular dialogue with folks around the world.
0: All right, Catherine, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. That's Catherine Holm, the Chief License Inspector for the City of Vancouver, talking about their short-term rental compliance rate. You know, there's lots of back-to-work in the classrooms at schools all over BC this week, tougher for teachers, students getting used to it, but also for education assistance. Now, we know there's this shortage of EAs in BC classrooms. Well, one of those assistants in the Richmond School District is speaking up, fed up with the situation, especially the lack of hours that she's been getting. Her name is June Kaiser, and she says that many education assistants have two jobs just to make ends meet. And she spoke to our Global News senior reporter, Janet Brown.
7: Well, there's a huge shortage of EAs in the province, probably across Canada, but I do know about the province. And what we've been trying to do over the last few years is explain to the province that one of the reasons probably the main reason that there's a shortage now is because the cost of living, especially in the Lower Mainland, but I know the problem exists elsewhere, is so high that we can't actually afford to do the job unless we have another source of income. And that income can be a partner who has got another job. In a lot of cases, it's people working two or three jobs um, in order to sustain their way of living down here. Um, myself, for example, I'm collecting my old age pension and my CPP and I'm working in order to be able to live in the lower mainland. Wow, that's so not that, easy. No, it's not easy for anybody and it has an impact on the kids um, because if we're worried about our finances, if we're worried about the fact that we have to rush off to another job, if we're tired because we worked all night and now have come to work with the kids during the school day, it, they're not getting the best of us.
2: So what is the situation here? Is it that EAs are not getting full-time work?
7: Each district is different. Okay. Um, But essentially, yes, we would like and have been asking, and I know our union has spoken about it, um, to work 35 hours. We can work as little as, um, I'm going to say, 27. There might be areas up north that are even less hours. But in Surrey, for example, I believe 27, 28 is considered full-time work there. That's not enough, as you can imagine, to, first of all, to do the job properly, because we really do need more time. They, the bell-to-bell situation, which is how they're describing it in Surrey, I think doesn't work that well, because we need to be, we need time to prep, we need to have time to um, meet with our colleagues, meet with, go to IEP meetings, all the stuff where EAs are involved in things that are not necessarily directly student-involved, as far as hands-on with the students.
2: Right. So yeah, the, re- the, the average EA, uh, you figure, works about 27 hours, and is that because of a lack of funding? Is is that the problem, do you think?
7: I honestly don't know what the problem is. Um, that's what's been explained to us, I guess. Okay. But um, I, I really, uh, it's beyond me when everybody now, including the minister himself today, says that we have, a, have an excessive shortage of EAs. Well, if they have an excessive shortage of managers, they generally up the salaries. It doesn't take rocket science to just make us all 35 hours. The other problem that we're going to run into, and I have run into it without even thinking about it when I first started doing this, is that because of the limited hours that we work, that affects our pension when we leave, when we retire. So while we are making, well, while we do get a pension and all the other stuff that goes along with it, um, what happens is that our pensions are certainly a lot less. Then when we retire, then it is some They fellow custodians who does work an eight-hour day or our fellow carpenters who work an eight-hour day, right? So they, they work full-time hours.
0: That's June Kaiser. She's an education assistant in the Richmond School District speaking out about her frustration there with Global News senior reporter Janet Brown. She says most EAs are getting about 27 hours a week and more are needed to do the job properly and live in the metro Vancouver area. Sounds like big changes are coming to the Granville Street Bridge. I mean, sure, in years past, we saw some major alterations to the Burrard Street Bridge and the viaducts and then the Camby Street Bridge. Now, serious talk about what to do about the Granville Street Bridge. So the City of Vancouver just presented six different potential ways the bridge could look in the future. More space for bikes, more space for pedestrians. Think about it is Desperately, pedestrians need a better way to get over that bridge above all else. I drive that bridge every day, twice a day, both directions, and I feel for the pedestrians because lots of tourists use it, lots of people, local people use it to just walk back and forth across the bridge. And you can tell it's quite nerve-wracking because of the narrow sidewalks, no railing or anything like that. It's, it's quite nerve-wracking, I could see, for pedestrians there. So now the city wants the public's input. You're going to have your chance to weigh in later this month. But we wanted to talk about this project with the help of Paul Storer, who's the Manager of Transportation Design at the City of Vancouver. Paul, thanks very much for joining us.
8: Great. Thanks for having me.
0: So what's the idea behind this? What do you, what's the city trying to do here?
8: So um, so we're really excited to be out for a second round of engagement uh, on the Gremble Bridge Connector Project. Uh, we had a first uh, round of engagement uh, in April uh, where we went out to talk to people about the project goals and what people's ideas were. Um, so now we're back with um, options that we've developed out of a lot of their, a lot of that feedback. And um, it's a really complex bridge um, because of all the ramps uh, in particular. Um so we end up with a lot of options uh, to to uh, talk to the public about the big um the big thing we 're trying to do here is um, is Granville well the three Falls creek bridges are really really important uh, for connecting people uh, working living shopping on either side of Falls creek mm-hmm. uh, downtown is downtown's the biggest employment area in the province and central Broadway just south of Falls Creek is the second biggest employment area in the province, and as you know they're both are really um, densely populated as well. So uh, there's lots of opportunities to, um, you know, give give people, uh, to allow people to walk and bike as as ways to get around um, across Falls Creek. And right now the Granville Bridge is a big barrier to that. Why is that? Well, it has um really narrow sidewalks um yeah so you know when you do see people walking there we have, there's actually a reasonable number of people that walk across there um but you tend to see them all sticking right to the railing because uh, yeah, you end do. up being really yeah you end up being really close to the uh uh to the moving traffic um it's also inaccessible so um, the the ramps which are also very uncomfortable for people to cross and if you're walking from gramble to gramble uh, you have to end up crossing to high speed ramps um, they're also inaccessible so if you're a wheelchair user or have you have a stroller or something like that it makes it very difficult if not impossible to cross.
0: So then what is this process like like how are you going to decide which one of these designs to choose and actually why don't you tell us a bit about the different designs?
8: Yeah, so we we assessed um, over 20 options, um, probably way more than that if you look at all the kind of really minor variations. And uh, based on meeting core project criteria, such as accessibility and safety and things like that, uh, we've narrowed it down to uh, six different design options. So um, basically all of them um, look at reallocating uh, two travel lanes across the Granville Bridge uh, to walking and cycling. Now, uh, this 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 bridge was originally built to be part of a freeway system and was designed to be carrying a lot more traffic than it could ever carry, just based on um, the constraints of the intersections at either end. Um, so, so you're saying there's room? Yeah, there's tons of room. Um, basically, all of the, you could fit all the traffic there into, into two lanes in either direction. You probably wouldn't want to do that. That would cause you know, some uh, some traffic issues that we wouldn't be excited about. But um, so anyway, the six options all look at reallocating two lanes. Um, so there's two options that look at reallocating two lanes on the west side of the bridge. And the two options vary based on uh, whether or not they add space to uh, the east sidewalk as well or not. And then um, there are two options on the east side of that look at reallocating two lanes on the east side of the bridge to walking and cycling. And again, one of those looks at adding adding some of that space back to the west sidewalk. Uh, there's an option that looks at um, both sides, so more like Burrard Bridge, yeah. except you have kind of the that added complexity of of needing to cross all all four of those ramps, so the Howland Seymour and and Hemlock and Ferrer ramps. And the last option is uh, the raised Center uh, race Center sidewalk. Um, so that would be you know you can avoid all of the complexities with the ramps. Um, by reallocating to the two center lanes um, to walking and cycling.
0: Right, that looks nice. Like, I looked at this online and I thought, okay, the middle part looks nice, but then how do you get people on or off the middle of the bridge?
8: Yeah, so they'd get on or off at uh, signalized intersections at either end. Um, so at the south end, um, in all of the options, we'd be looking at um, building a new intersection at Fifth Avenue and um, normalizing the, the loop and at, right. uh, on the west side. Um so with all of those, we'd use that signalized intersection to be able to get people walking and cycling onto or off of that path. And at the north end, um, we'd be doing the same thing at Drake Street.
0: Okay. And so what is the timeline like for this then, Paul? Like when does the city envision this moving forward?
8: Yeah. So we're hoping to um, use the information we get over the next month uh, to come up with a preferred option and bring that back out for a good discussion later this year. And uh, our hope is to get um, go to council with a recommendation in early uh, 2020. Um, there'd be a long design phase uh, with to, to do all the detailed design and structural design, and we'd be hoping to build something in 2021.
0: All right, so it's going to move around sound fairly quickly. It sounds like. Uh,
8: what we're, That's not we're too hoping, bad. yeah.
0: So, how can people get involved in this?
8: Um, so, we're having uh, three open houses. So, all the materials online. And uh, the survey, there'll be a public survey online um, on uh, the 13th or before the 13th when the first open house is. Uh, There's three open houses on the 13th and 14th um, at uh, Broadway and Canby and a third open house on the 17th at the library downtown. Uh, we're also holding a number of uh, public workshops uh, from the nineteenth to, to the twenty first of September uh, that will give people an opportunity if they want to dig into all of it in more detail and have conversations uh, with with both staff and other people who are interested um, that that'll we'll be holding uh, that'll we'll be holding then um, yeah, we're hoping we, we, in our first round of engagement, we got an extremely high level of participation. We got over uh, 5,000 surveys back, which was fantastic. Uh, it's great to hear that people are really interested in this project. Um, so, so yeah, we're hoping that uh, we get kind of a similar level of response Um So yeah,
0: do do you think this could also change? You know, part of what happens on Granville Street too—the downtown aspect of it. If you're encouraging more pedestrians, more people to be, you know, on the actual bridge, do you foresee that impacting that part of Granville?
8: Yeah, that that part of Granville north of north of Drake is is something that we've been looking at for a long time.
2: Mm -hmm. Um, It
8: was it was rebuilt with uh, the Cannon Line and and. There are opportunities now to probably better improve that as a walking uh, as a walking connection um, to to use the space in there better. Um, so it is something that we're going to be talking about over the over the coming months and years.
0: All right, interesting. Well, Paul, thank you.
8: Great, thank you very much.
0: That's Paul Storer, the manager of transportation design at the City of Vancouver.
8: The board did not approve a staff recommendation to proceed with an application for an injunction to remove structures. <laughs> and tents
7: at Oppenheimer Park.
0: That is Park Board Commissioner uh, Stuart McKinnon speaking in the last hour and a half or so, talking about why the Vancouver Park Board has now voted not to kick out people who have been camping in Oppenheimer Park. This has been ongoing for months now. The chair says this is a bigger issue about homelessness right across the city. So what he's saying is he wants the city to do more, to create a multi-jurisdictional task force dealing with this situation, but doesn't necessarily want the city to take over the park. Uh, this has been contentious. For instance, that vote that happened last night at the park board wasn't unanimous. There was one commissioner who voted against it, wanted to vote in favor of an injunction to remove all the tents at Oppenheimer. That is commissioner John Cooper. Uh, he is his prediction is that Vancouver parks could now fill with tents. He was talking to reporters about this earlier and his statement was disrupted by residents have a listen i do not uh, own
6: housing
1: shut i have nothing to down. do
6: with housing and i'm talking about the park
1: for it i'm not i'm
8: saying that you the said park. everybody
1: was offered You're saying i was told the, the that
8: everybody was offered city housing.
1: The
6: province has created this amazing new options of housing so where are these new options I never said you've that. robbed housing from people and not housed anyone on the street for the last seven months because of your choices to work with BC Housing behind the
0: scenes and not be open and transparent with
9: us. The City of Vancouver works with BC Housing.
0: That is John Kupar, Park Board Commissioner, engaging with uh, residents who are not happy with his vote last night to proceed with the injunction, but he was definitely in the minority. Park Board has voted to not go ahead with the injunction. Well, let's find out what's going on. So it's back to all this discussion of Oppenheimer Park. Robin Crawford is with us now, global news reporter who has been covering this story today. Hi, Robin.
1: Good afternoon, Simi. All
0: right. So, where are we at with this now? So does that mean that nothing is going to be enforced at Oppenheimer Park?
1: Well, they want a multi-jurisdictional system. So, they're writing a letter to the city. They want them, the province, and the federal government to come together and and make a homelessness task force. Now, that sounds like they're putting it off to me. It sounds like people are not going to be leaving Oppenheimer Park anytime soon. Uh, but they want it's it's more of a bigger issue. They want to solve homelessness in Vancouver instead.
0: Okay, well, good luck with that. I know people have been trying. What is the state of the number of tents and people camping at Oppenheimer Park these days?
1: Yeah, our last number was about 40 tents still there and dozens of people still living in the park. Now, I've been in the park. It's totally unusable. That's the problem. The park board needs to stay in their lane. And, and we hear that from the protesters. Uh, John Coupar saying, you know, I'm the park board. I don't deal with homelessness. I'm supposed to stay dealing with par- parks. And he's totally right.
0: So that doesn't sound like that's going to happen, though, with this backing off. Now, we know the mayor, Kennedy Stewart, has said he'd like the city to kind of take over here. Where does that stand?
1: Well, I I asked uh, McKinnon about that. Uh, He said he doesn't want the city to take over exactly. He just wants the city to be working with the provincial and the federal government for funding to attack homelessness.
0: Okay. So then where does that leave everything? People, I mean, the weather's going to turn next week, right? Things are going to get pretty, start to get a little messy down there.
1: Yeah, it sure is. And as the way that I left that press conference, it just sounded like there's nobody leaving Oppenheimer Park anytime soon.
0: All right, then. So then today, it just means that everything is down. What happened to the people who were offered other options, right? We know that there was a lot of services, people on site helping out. Are those people still there?
1: You know, we do know that there is, you know, 40 tents still in that park. So we know that a lot of people uh, didn't accept or they have come back or whatever their situations are. I was speaking to the protesters today and they said that there wasn't enough options offered to them for everyone to be able to leave the park and go into places like modular homes and SOTs.
0: Okay, so what were they looking for then? Did they want just, yeah, more housing options?
1: You know, I have been speaking to people who are living in the house and are living over in Oppenheimer Park, and a lot of them are saying that, A, they don't want to be going into modular homes. A lot of them feel like they have a better sense of community. Uh, they Their friends and their family live there. They, they like living in Oppenheimer Park, which is something that we actually hear quite a bit uh, when we do talk to the people who are on the ground. Uh, I don't know if it's the city offering them different options or if it's just the complete eviction or whatever the answer is here, Simi, uh, but I know right. that a lot of people because there's 40 tents still want to stay there
0: okay so then right now robin it looks like everything just stays status quo yeah it sure does all right robin thank you very much for that thanks simi that is robin crawford our global news reporter time for our nature segment i was looking forward to this today because i had some questions about all these moths that i have been seeing a lot of us have been seeing them here at work when the staff at cknw came in today we saw this kind of an odd sight everybody saw what was John McCau show team, Simi Sarah show team. When we came to work, there were dozens of these moths that were resting on the outside of the windows of the building. We've never seen this before. I've worked here for 10 years. I have not seen this happen to the windows before. And they've been hanging around and having hanging around, which has made us ask the question, why are they all there? Is something wrong? Are there is there like an explosion in the moth population this year? So we thought we would ask an expert about this. We tasked our CKNW contributor, Claire Allen, with doing this. She caught up with Katie Marshall, an assistant professor in the Department of Zoology at UBC, To find out more about what is going on.
10: So, Katie, this morning I came into work, and when I Mm -hmm. opened the door to come into our office, we have a ton of windows because we're uh, right downtown in a high rise, and it's a completely glass, like, windowed building. And (laughs) all on all of the windows by the where the producers sit were tons of moths. And I've worked here for a a while, but I've never seen moths on the windows. Um, mm-hmm. So I'm just wondering. I sent you a picture of what of what the moths look like, and I know it's from the underside. But I was wondering if, yes. if you could tell me what you what kind of moths you think they, those they might be.
9: So broadly speaking, it looks like a tussock moth. So uh, tussock moths are in the family Arabid, Arabidae, um, and so they um, are kind of smallish moths. Is that right? And and sort of grayish brown usually. Uh, they have like really cute caterpillars that are always really fuzzy, um, and if I had to guess based on the time of the year, there's sort of two possibilities. Uh, one is the rusty tussock moth, and the other is the Douglas fir tussock moth. And uh, those, one of them, the rusty one, is actually an invasive species from Europe, and the Douglas fir uh, tussock moth is actually a native species to British Columbia. And if I really had to guess, I would say that it's probably the Douglas fir tussock moth. And the reason I think that is that uh, they undergo these sort of boom-bust cycles in their population. So every nine years or so, they have a boom time where there's tons and tons and tons of them. And uh, right now, I, I just saw an article that said that uh, Washington State is uh, spraying to deal with a, a really big boom of, of, these, of the Douglas fir tussock moths.
10: Oh, interesting. So during the boom <clears throat> the boom cycle, do they cause <clears throat> any damage, and is that why Washington is spraying for them?
9: Yeah, so uh, the caterpillars eat Douglas fir needles, um, and that can cause a really um, a large amount of damage to Douglas fir. Um, and so, you know, it's it's not only just a, a problem for you know sort of aesthetically, but also can eventually potentially kill the tree. So, um, and if all if the tree loses all its needles in a single year, that can that can kill the tree. So, um, it is a, a big concern for foresters.
10: I know that moths are attracted to light, or at least I think Mm -hmm. they are, Um, and I'm just wondering why they, would they be, would that be why they were attracted to our windows? Because there were literally tons of them, and I'd never seen them before, and they were just, you know, on the window, uh, wings out. And just there. <laughs> Would that be why we saw so many of them on our windows this morning? What could have been from the light from overnight? I
9: couldn't tell you. Um, usually, yes, moths are, are attracted to the light, and we we think that might be because they're trying to navigate. And when there's artificial light, like so, they usually navigate by the moon. But if there's artificial light, then you can end up getting them kind of confused. Like they're like, "What? You know, this? I'm moving past it, and you know, the angle's changing, and it's it's really confusing for them." The other possibility, um, and some insects will do this. they will sit somewhere where the sun comes up, and that's just to warm them up so that they can fly. And both species of tussock moth I told you about, it's only the males that fly. The females are actually flightless. So the males at this time of year um, in both species are, are looking for the females. And so for them, if they sit somewhere where the sun comes up, it warms them up, they're going to be able to fly nice and well and find those females um, that are calling right now for them. So
10: if the females can't fly, do they
9: just sit on the ground and wait? Yeah. So the females like just hang out on their cocoon and they um, actually give off a pheromone that the males are attracted to.
10: Wow. That's so interesting to be a moth that can't fly. It's
9: very- yeah, I know. It seems yeah. like that would be the best part of being a moth, right? Yeah. Like getting to fly around. Yeah. Yeah. It seems like so- it's
10: unfair for the females. <laughs>
9: <laughs> Definitely. And so this is a time of year in both species that the, the females call the males go out looking for them, um, and then the females will lay the eggs near their near their um, sort of cocoon where they they emerged as as adults, and then the eggs will overwinter.
10: Oh wow! Okay, cool. So essentially, what we're probably seeing or what we saw this morning are a bunch of male tussock moths, and, mm-hmm. and they are probably just warming themselves up to go and find some female moths.
9: Yeah, that might, that would be my best guess. Although, you know, it's it's hard to get inside the mind of the moth. <laughs>
10: right. Yes, I imagine that'd be difficult. Well, that's really interesting. Thank you so much, Katie. I really appreciate uh, your time chatting with me about this and uh, answering all our questions here at NW. <laughs>
0: Oh, it's been my pleasure. Thanks. I did find that so interesting. Actually, that's Katie Marshall. She's an assistant professor in the Department of Zoology at UBC. We had questions about these moths, like swarms of them, that we were seeing on the windows of of the building here where we work. And given what Katie Marshall just said there, she described the Douglas fir tussock moth, So I looked it up while I was listening to her, saw the pictures. Yep, that is definitely what was plastered all over our windows here. And it turns out it has a population that periodically erupts in cyclical outbreaks. They feed on the needles of Douglas fir in the summertime. And then they are on the wing, as it says, uh, from July or August to November. So this would be kind of prime time for these moths and where they are flying around. And yeah, we've just never seen anything like this before. It has been very interesting.